0: This is Judaism Unbound, episode 64, Judaism by Design. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rofus.
0: And we're here for the fourth episode in our Omer series, that period between Passover and Shavuot, where we're reenacting the process of wandering in the wilderness, this idea of Jewish not knowing, and we're exploring... Silicon Valley is a landscape of not knowing, a landscape of experimentation. And we're trying to understand from folks who are working in Silicon Valley, what are some of the ways of thinking that are most valuable in a time and a place of not knowing? We've put together this series with our friends from the Ashman family, JCC in Palo Alto. We're really grateful for their help in putting the series together. And today our interview is with Jesse Dora Gusker, who is the hardware lead at Square, the company that helps you take your credit card payments on your mobile phone. Prior to working at Square, where he was the main designer of the gadgets that connect to your phone and allow you to read your credit card, he was the director of engineering for iPhone, iPod, and iPad accessories at Apple. As we said last week, you weren't on this interview, Lex, because it was part of my little trip to the Bay Area, to Silicon Valley, to do some of these interviews live. But, uh, you know, your spirit was with me.
1: I'm glad. And the one contribution I would have made and that I must make now is Omer o oh, square
0: very nice um uh, and before we jump into the interview i also just wanted to mention that at least as i'm seeing this right that this is our next step in this exploration after youtube because For me, at least, in thinking about YouTube, it's it's kind of about empowering people not to be led, but to essentially be leaders, perhaps in a small way, but that YouTube essentially allows many, many people to take an important role in the creative process. And I think that the Uh, The next stage, uh, you know, why we were particularly interested in talking to someone who is an engineer, who is a designer, who is somebody that's working on creating user interfaces that are most usable by people, who uh, is creating products like uh, the iPhone, like Square, which fundamentally allow people to take an even more active role in the creative process. Uh, that it was a very interesting uh, next step after talking to someone at YouTube to talk to somebody who's actually designing hardware that really allows people to take that role in ways that weren't possible before the
1: technological revolution. He gave a little bit of a snapshot into, I mean, you and him together gave a little bit of a snapshot. It's funny to give past tense as we're about to have this conversation. But since we're <laughs> recording this afterwards, he gave is about to give all of it um, a great window into not only the questions that apply to his work at Square, but also how to think about this uh, a little bit in the realm of Judaism, too. And we'll, of course, carry that forward in some of our future episodes. But Jesse helped us on that point himself as well. So uh, here's my interview with
0: Jesse Gusker. Jesse, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's great to have you.
2: Of course, it's great to be here.
0: So, um, you know, I, I was just thinking that, uh, well, first of all, could you just tell us a little bit about your background and w- how you got into the, your work? Sure.
2: I'll start from the beginning, and, and most people in tech around here that I hear from and talk to they usually start with a story about being an early tinkerer, taking things apart and, and wanting to be an engineer from the very beginning. That is absolutely not my story. Hmm. I wanted to be a rock star and I wanted to be a baseball player. Uh, and it's potentially the failure of both that led to other opportunities, uh, but maybe also a, a, a deep interest in in design and building that just emerged. Um, I've been an engineer my whole professional career, uh, starting as a mechanical engineer, trained in um product design, product development, and I've worked at a variety of big and small companies over time, the biggest uh, being Apple, which was Apple Computer when I started, changed their name to Apple Inc. somewhere along the way, uh, and the smallest was a four-person team of engineers doing product development for a variety of startups in the Bay Area during the dot-com boom. And now? Now I lead the hardware team at Square. We do our best to make sure that everyone has access to the financial system uh, of record, which is that most people pay with credit cards. Mm -hmm. So merchants of all sizes, especially small businesses, even businesses that don't yet know their businesses or wouldn't even describe themselves as businesses.
0: Can we start to just, for you to give us some sense of how you think about, how you have thought about when you've had these challenges of saying, you know, I'm going to be Either designing something new, or I think even more central to what we're looking at, I'm going to be redesigning something that is a version of it is out there, but we're taking a new approach to it. What are the pieces that go into your thinking when you when you look at a challenge like that?
2: Empathy is number one. You have to uh, you have to think carefully about who you're designing for and what their experience is, what it is they're trying to accomplish. Uh, I think the approach of redesigning something, which is itself, it's a, a narrow set of product design, can be limiting very fast. Uh It's a zero-sum mentality. If I'm to design something, it's going to be against this other thing that's currently designed, and my success will be the removal of this other thing that, that existed before it. Most great design, most great innovations don't feel like that, aren't like that. They create space where there wasn't obviously space. They will complement something that already exists but in the area of product development and innovation I think it's it's better to think about the bigger spaces that haven't yet been identified.
0: Well let's talk about Square in that context because I think you know maybe it's a strained analogy here that I want to make between square or between credit card payments and Judaism. Um, right. But, but in a sense, right, we're talking about a, a thing that you could do um, take payments through credit cards that was very limited to a very sm- small, relatively speaking subset of the population, which, which had to, I don't know exactly, you know better than I, that had to invest in all sorts of technology and relationships with businesses that process credit cards, et cetera. And the innovation of square was essentially to put that, Capability in the hands of any person. So I guess, I guess um, two two questions I have about that. What was the intent at the time of creating Square, and then how did the design of the technology play into that? And how, what are, what are the factors that um, that had to go into the question of how do we make this thing now accessible to anybody? I'll start with the
2: founding story of Square. The one of the co-founders is a glassblower, and he made beautiful glass art and tried to sell it. And was in a position to sell his art one day to someone who wanted to buy a water faucet, uh, an ornate, beautiful glass water faucet. And Jim didn't accept credit cards because small businesses, entrepreneurs didn't at the time. And he had a customer who said, I don't have cash on me and lost the sale. And And Jim called his friend, Jack, our other founder, and was complaining to him about it and realized the irony that he was holding... An iPhone. He was holding a supercomputer that was talking to the sky and his friends some, in some other place. Yet he didn't have the power to accept uh, a sixteen-digit number imprinted on a piece of plastic that someone willingly carried around with them as a as a form of payment. And and that seemed like a big disconnect. So it was personal experience on Jim's part and very fast empathy on Jack's part to realize that that Jim and the and people like Jim were excluded from the rails of commerce. They quickly determined that there were over 20 million businesses in the US that were not accepting credit cards because they couldn't. They were excluded for some interesting reasons, ranging from interesting to bad reasons, uh, excluded from this. And it has been the mission of the company, uh, the purpose of the company, to provide economic empowerment in the form of making this technology more accessible to people. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of cell phones connected to the internet, There were a billion credit cards in people's pockets. What is the simplest way to tie them together? What is the most uh, accessible, uh, inexpensive, easy to distribute, lightest, put it in your pocket kind of way to connect those two things? That insight, um, I I absolutely won't take credit for that insight. Uh, Jack and Jim's insight was that the problem became simpler and no one noticed
0: we've been talking about that there's a, uh, a thinker named Yitz Greenberg who has this kind of theology idea over a long period of time that that in each iteration of Judaism, God sort of steps back one step further, and that leaves more responsibility upon human beings. And so we need more human beings to shoulder that responsibility. So, you know, you go from a small group of priests to a larger group of rabbis, and his insight, this was, you know, 30 years ago or so, was that now that um can be shouldered by the leaders of Jewish communal organizations, you know, not just rabbis. Um, but I think that the really exciting thing that we've discovered in in launching this podcast and starting to work on the internet is the realization that, whoa, the technology has now changed in such a way that actually access to all that knowledge and sharing of that creative potential is now possible to be shouldered by the, every single Jew. Um, and that that just didn't exist 30 years ago. And so it, the insight of Yitz Greenberg is probably the same insight that we're working with right now. I would put it in different terms, less theological, but you know, it's, it's the basic same idea. And yet, it's because of something that that's happened in the intervening thirty years that all of a sudden makes that idea um, accessible on a completely different level.
2: Right. And and one of the things that we'll confront probably for the next twenty years is how to how to manage that breath, that kind of profound. Um, mil- millions of people contributing to something uh, requires editing and mm-hmm. and co-authorship and cooperation in a way that uh, you didn't have to do before. There are small pockets of innovators would be in someone's garage and not talk to anybody and go do something, and that's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, startup founders are launching their products on Amazon Web Services and are kind of instantly connected to others in their engineering projects uh, in a way that's less isolating, which is good mostly, uh, but more complicated. You have to develop a different set of skills to design on environment.
0: We've been thinking a lot about this question of integration versus modularization, you know, and that there's this, uh, and that in a sense, Judaism has been presented as more or less an integrated system, you know, the whole widget. And uh, for various reasons, especially when we're talking about people that are not participating in Jewish life. Th- it's not that they want evolutionary change with that system. So they're just not. If it's going to be only presented as a system, it's got all this stuff that they're not interested in. They're just not going to want it. So our question is kind of like, okay, so if step one is modularization and sort of allowing people to have access to all the pieces of Judaism independently. Um, on the one hand, that's really exciting and that's really um, uh, enticing to people that I can just play around with one piece of it. But, but like I think I heard you saying, I mean, then it creates a huge mess. And I assume that that happens in the technology world too. And so, how do you, how do you, kind of, as a, as a designer, as a, as an engineer, as a person who works in a company like Apple, which ultimately is trying to integrate things back together, I think, um, how do you think about that process and, and the different phases of it?
2: I think the place where the art meets the science is is picking the right modularization. Some people would describe a product as a hierarchical pyramid where the the bottom is the utility, uh, and then the next layer up is uh, maybe how accessible it is, and the next layer up uh, would be how nicely it works, and next layer up would be cost accessibility, and above that might be the design aesthetic. And uh, a weak description of the modular or getting started version of that is to just do the bottom layer, to just do the utility. And products like that or ideas like that tend to, uh, one, have no character, <laughs> uh, and two, not be as modular as you think because you can't take that utility and snap it on to anything actually or conceptually that makes it good, that makes it whole for you. Uh, if, if instead you think of a, a slice of a cake that's the other axis where you get a little bit of the utility and a little bit of the user interface and a little bit of the really thoughtful Design aesthetic and a little bit of cost sensitivity and a little bit of good distribution. You have a smaller piece that, in its own right, is whole, even mm-hmm. though it's smaller.
0: Well, you know, it's, as you're talking, I'm thinking like, is Judaism the apple or the square in this story, right? Or does Judaism want to be the apple or the square in this story? And and I think that Judaism has thought of itself as the apple, right? As the meaning, as the iPhone, as the as the main you know, the, this, the hub, you know, and yeah, we could attach other peripherals to it, but um, but Judaism is, is the hub. And it's interesting to think about what it looks like if something else is the hub, whether that's being an American or the digital age or however we want to define that new hub of our existence in the world. We've talked about this on our show as Judaism moving from being an OS to an app. Maybe actually this connects to the theme of, of this uh, series. You know, the, the wandering in the desert period is when you turn it into a bunch of apps, and maybe it turns into another operating system. Maybe it finds a happy place to be as an app or a peripheral. The way that I heard you describe Square was right—that we've we found this brilliant way to be to to not have to be the hub because somebody else did that. You know, right? And and that's a and that's an exciting possibility as opposed to sort of a depressing. Um, sense of our smallness
2: well i think you're describing a forever quest to figure out where you fit in Uh, i think in square's case uh, we did find that complementary position between smartphones and credit cards uh, but we also are aspiring to be if not the hub i'm not sure i'd use that word um, a a profoundly important part of a a person's business life Mm -hmm. the, the tools they use for business and We've kicked around phrases about an OS for your business, uh, an app for your business. We actually do provide app for your business. Um, that analogy, I don't think, is, is working for us. You won't hear it very commonly mm-hmm. in uh, in the way we talk about ourselves. Uh, but, it, but it's a good question to ask. It is about where you fit in, uh, and you have to do that from the perspective of the customer, about the many ways that Jewish life or technology or a product can fit into their experience. Apple with the iPhone, I think interestingly, suddenly found themselves in a position of not being the minority. The laptops, the computers were, were the minority shareholder, uh, market shareholder, uh, but really had some standout character to them. With the iPhone, I think that's been turned upside down. It's a really interesting cultural challenge for the company to be the, to be the market leader, to be the mainstream mm-hmm. and have that high sense of, of uh, remarkability.
0: I want to go back to that, that customer-focused part. But before we do, I as you were talking, I was just uh, reminded of another guest that we had on our podcast who talked about the analogy that he gave was a restaurant that you know was like a big restaurant like P.F. Chang's or something like that, right? It occupied a huge amount of space. And for some reason, that business wasn't working anymore. And they had this big piece of real estate and they decided to turn it into a food court. Um, right. You know, and the question becomes, so there's a, there's the business decision, whether we are willing to go out of business as a restaurant and, and use our facility as a food court, because that's how people want to eat now. But in a way, the deeper question is, are we willing to turn our restaurant into one of the, one of the stalls in the food court, you know, or is that too, um, sort of harmful to our sense of self, you know, that it would be better to go out of business uh, or just completely change our business than to accept this reduced role as a stall in the food court.
2: I think that's a I think that's a really insightful question. And if you read uh, a bunch of Clayton Christensen's work about jobs to be done, there's to me there's a real um, in a good way. I'll say it negatively first. There's a coldness to uh, we should just make an observation and figure out what we need to make, even if the answer is. My business doesn't exist. I don't have the position that I think I should. Uh, a few of his examples are, are they wrap up nicely. Uh, a fast food place that's selling shakes in the morning thinks they're selling shakes to kids that are delicious. What they're really selling are shakes for commuters who want something hearty on their way to work, and it gives them a different point of view on exactly who it's for and what. Uh, but there's an underlying assumption there that they are a food business and they can still do this profitably in that. That vanishes a little bit. There's another good example about the Chicago architecture tour. I think this is from his mm-hmm. writing. Um, there was a tour of architecture that you would do from a boat in Chicago. Spectacular. Uh, and they thought the goal was to educate people who are already interested in architecture about architecture. And they were catering to students. And they were trying to drive the price down and make it more and more accessible. And what they realized from talking to their customers is that they're mostly out-of-town guests who are looking for something Uniquely wonderful with uh, shockingly no price sensitivity to how, <laughs> what they pay for how wonderful a tour that was. But again, th- that's a hero story that keeps the architecture tour in business. In fact, in a more flourishing business, there are other challenges where you are in a maybe a less strong position, either as an app or an operating system. Uh, you even heard in the early days of uh, Facebook really trying to contend with the fact that they didn't make the phone. And there were many. Uh, rumors and I don't know if there are any confirmed rumors about Facebook trying to make a phone because they were even trying to find their own place and the, are we just an app? We're, we're driving so much important usage to, to Apple and Google and Samsung and LG. Why aren't, you know, what's the liability of being in our, our position outside of that ecosystem? So even the big successful ones contend
0: with that. When you talk about this empathy dimension and the understanding what people need and are looking for, What are the, I guess let's start with, how do you go about that as a business? How do you, I mean, really practically, like how do you um, assess that? And how do you do the kind of things that Christensen talks about where he says, you know, If you ask these surface level questions, that you're going to get it wrong. You're you're going to understand that where the desire is, but you're not really going to understand the deep job to be done. How do you really get there? And then I'm um and then I'd want to sort of pursue this question of you know when we're thinking about something like Judaism, you know that's not a business but at the but 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 somehow we still have to go to the non-participants and understand deeply is there something missing from their life that maybe judaism could right that's the question maybe it can't but let's start by understanding if there is something that they're needing then and then the next question i guess would be do we have the is that in our dna to to accomplish we tend to have some notion in mind of what judaism is and when we think of what judaism is i think we're thinking of some version of an integrated system it may be the maybe reformed judaism so it's a different integrated system than whatever traditional judaism was in eastern europe 300 years ago but nevertheless we're thinking of it as basically an integrated system and so then we say okay well what does this integrated system do and 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 i think we tend to think about it as a kind of a marketing challenge is there a way that we can make the pitch that this system can work for you. And I'm trying to sort of play out what would the opposite direction thinking go where it says, you know, so this is me, Dan, personally talking, saying like if I think about all the desperate needs that I have in my life, you know, probably dominant among them has to do with parenting, right? It has to do with how do I be a good parent, you know, sort of in terms of how do I raise my children well? And then there's a question of just the practicalities of being a parent, like how do I pick my kid up from school on time and, you know, still have a job? Um And it feels to me like, You know, what would it look like if we started by being profoundly focused on that job to be done in the way that you with Square or that the founders of Square had had understood that there was this particular deep problem that that people are facing, which was how do I take money? I mean, that was the driving problem. So Mm -hmm. it's almost as to me, like if there was a project that sort of focused on the most desperate human need that's out there, that's not really being met by anyone else, which is how to be a good parent um and and uh and then it's like okay now how do we think about the the bringing the jewish content to bear on that right we have because so we have to think we have to think modularly right so we have to first say okay we're we're gonna not throw away but we're not gonna pay any attention to like any of the jewish stuff that doesn't have to do with being a good parent right you know i mean that's sort of the that's like the thinking question like how do we how do we um you know how do we look to a product or a way of doing things that does exist in the world, but we're gonna we're gonna be pulling pieces of it out and rewiring it and turning it into some kind of new product is gonna meet this very limited need that we've identified, with the expectation that over time, like you're saying with Square, yeah, that's how we started, but then now we're gonna start building on that.
2: You brought up the parenting example. For me, it was the preschool here at the JCC. That was that connection for me I, I my wife and I wanted to send our kids to preschool. Uh, our starting position was was not that we wanted to send our kids to a Jewish preschool. Uh, we were focused on parenting we had two kids two little kids at the time uh, and and you can imagine many listeners will know that not a lot of other things you can think about when you have two kids under two exactly, other than having, exactly. of having those children and thinking about bringing them to preschool. So you have to meet people where they are. The other thing is that you have to have some thesis of why the integration matters, even if it progressively reveals itself so having a having a fitness center uh at your j c c is a, it's a nice amenity certainly someone who's already all in would would see it as a nice amenity. It's also possible that you would attract someone to the j c c because of the fitness center for some reason it's convenient for them. And they could use it in isolation and never engage with any other aspect of what the community has to offer. And I don't know that you'd consider that a failure case, but you certainly wouldn't call that out as a thing that revealed the value of the integration. I think what you'd call the value of integration would be the the friendships formed, the the flyers you pass by to see uh, what programs are available and maybe one catches your eye. And then you begin your engagement just because you wanted to go lift heavy pieces of metal and make your muscles bigger. Like, it, it started, you met someone where their need was, and then you had a strong thesis for the value of integration, even if you didn't try to sell that thesis to all people all the time at the
0: very beginning. That's one pathway is, the, is to see the value of the integration. But the but the other pathway that I think sort of um, matches more to, I think, Square's pathway and where Square wants to go, right, is saying that we're going to start with this um, with this modularized, meet people where they're at, it does one thing, it takes credit cards attached to your phone. Um, and But we do have an aspiration to build a system over time, not, not to attract people to some existing system, right? It's not MasterCard that made the Square Reader as a way to improve their business. It's a new company that said, you right, we made this new approach here. And now that's going to lead to something new. And it may not Lead to the return to that old system. It may, we, you know, it may or may not be ultimately systematized. But if it is, it's going to be a new system that we've layered on, with the starting point of where we started. The goal is to meet people where they are at the preschool, let's say, or at the gym, but not then to persuade them to now come to the next the other thing that we offer, but rather to say, how can we now create a new. Uh, a new activity at at the preschool that maybe now meets the needs of those people, maybe it meets the parents' needs, maybe it meets the needs of the kids at the next stage of growth.
2: Right. I think we're talking about profoundly different timescales. Square's been around for eight years. The smartphone existed for the entirety of the company's history. The iPad was invented kind of early in its history. We really only existed in, in one era, mm. one fraction of uh, of an era. And and we are growing and our thought is growing as our product is growing, as the industry is growing. We're kind of growing up together. The challenge for Jewish life, I think, is it should be a, a huge asset of, of thousands of years, but a lot of entrenched ideas and underlying assumptions that uh, sometimes are universal and sometimes aren't as universal as you think and, and need re, re-examination over time. Uh, if Square becomes the lasting company, we all think it uh, will be, you know, we'll contend with things in in 20 years, 30 years that fundamentally challenge the the facts and behaviors that we built the company on. Uh, I, I referenced the billion credit cards in people's pockets in the U.S. I think that'll be true for a while, but it's hard to imagine that we'll be carrying around little squares of plastic in 50 years, 40 years, certainly not 100 years. The idea that we're carrying around pieces of plastic in our pocket that represent, uh, Unsecured credit, it's it's not likely, and and Square will have to do something different in that time and really face profound questions about who we are and what our value is and who our customers are and what that value of integration really is. But we're we're in very early days, and we haven't had uh, we haven't had to contend with that.
0: You know, one of the ways in which I am sort of most impressed with Apple is its willingness to. Uh, say, look, this other, this old way that we've been doing it, uh, or the old way that I was doing it is essentially over-service, right? It's, uh, that's another Christiansen term that that these um, older products, and Judaism, right, being the oldest product of all, okay. right, that the problem, it's both a, it's both an advantage and a problem that it has all this great stuff in it, right? Because it, it yeah, so it has a tremendous well that you can go to, but it also, uh, if you, if it tries to put it out there as a whole system that you have to take the whole thing, then it, overserves the vast majority of people and they're not willing to put to to pay the money or the time or whatever to acquire you know to really take in the system. So it feels like Apple's, you know, approach to that is to continually kind of or to iteratively sort of winnow it back down, you know, and understand that entropy kind of has that effect of expanding what it is and and periodically we're gonna it out, you know, and and you were involved in, in one of the great um, examples of that, right? You know, which was the which was the change from the old iPod connector to the Lightning connector, and and I remember th- that time where you know I, as like a big Apple fan, was kind of like whatever my God tells me to do, I will do, you know. So it didn't really bother me um, that I had all these other courses, but there were many other people who didn't like that, you know, and, and and I always felt like Apple's approach was kind of like yeah, well, we got that's how we got to do it though.
2: So you use the word winnowing. I think that's a very dainty way to describe it. uh others would call it ruthlessly editing uh and and that's probably the most culturally strong element uh from my Apple experience that I learned, admired um, Steve Jobs carried that uh very powerfully the ruthless editing uh and it felt ruthless because if you have empathy for your million customers you want to in aggregate make them all happy which means you want all of the features in all of the products all of the time so that no one ever feels sad it comes from a good place uh it is it is often the wrong instinct because you end up overserving um and you uh you pile on requirements that just don't let you unlock other thinking the the macbook air is probably a good example of some ruthless editing, the first version of it, that uh, that focused on weight and thickness above all else. It removed a lot of things, a lot of things that people liked and used and cords that people um, had experience with. And it unlocked a product that wasn't just a little bit lighter and smaller than a previous laptop. It's it's the kind of product that my you know my eleven year old can carry one handed without without worry. And, and radically changes the portability of something that you would also, you would already have called portable, but pales in comparison. So that, that ruthless editing is in service of, uh, more customers than you think, even though you feel badly that, that some have, have been excluded because you didn't give every feature in every product. Uh, Steve in particular is outstanding at that. And, and if he has taught it well enough, the company will continue to carry that.
0: But it's interesting when you think about um, Apple, even the way that I phrased it, compared to the way that you usually think about uh, the reason why companies don't do that, right? Is that um, right? You're the, and the classic Christensen um, theory, right, is that the reason why companies don't do that is because they don't want to lose their current customers, any of because they're the best customers, they're already customers, they're the high end customers, they're paying, you know, and 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 it may be that make it more portable or whatever is going to get all these new customers, but it might not happen as fast as you're going to lose the customers that that don't like that change. Um, and yet the way that I presented my experience with Apple, and it's really the way that I now experience with my MacBook Pro that I have is that, so I got to carry around some dongles? You know, Well, my God told me to carry around some dongles. It's fine. You know, like, because I have faith that this is Going in a good direction, right? And I, and, and I've learned through my own experience to be able to be willing to weather that, that, that period of, you know, having to carry around a few dongles for being part of this thing that I feel like overall has really made my technology using life really great. Mm-hmm. And so ironically, right? Because I'm a very uh, old, committed Apple customer, I'm actually willing to have these features stripped away from me. Uh, and I'm, and it doesn't make me leave Apple. Uh, now the question is: Is that a unique situation for Apple because they've created such a uh, such a, a cult of, of support among their their customers, or you know, taking, or, or can can others learn from that to say, you know, what if you actually build a strong enough relationship with your your customers, your participants, your members? you actually can win their confidence so that you can um, do that ruthless editing periodically. And actually, if you don't do the ruthless editing, you're going to lose them because even your best customers are going to get, end up overserved. Or not. I mean, that's the question that I... I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or insight on it from other companies. When they're
2: right about it, you admire its simplicity. You will gush about its simplicity. Uh, the Amazon Echo uh, looks simple, is simple. Uh, it has two buttons on it. I haven't touched them yet. I actually don't even know what they do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me too. could have edited it a little bit more maybe. I think <laughs> one of them is mute, which maybe I'll use one day. <laughs> so so many companies do this. It's a, it's a really important part of product development. What you owe on the other side as a product developer, though, is a remarkable product on the other end. <laughs> Ruthless editing can't be uh, uh, just a thing you put on the wall and and you measure people by their ruthlessness and their number of edits and you reward them based on that it has to be in service of a remarkable experience for a customer condition that you can describe a la uh, the jobs to be done framework of saying that someone's trying to accomplish this there may be some adjacent jobs that they might also want to do like plug in a cd drive to the computer but i would describe that as an adjacent job not a core job how remarkable can we make the core job what's that Quest for perfection of a narrower definition of a job.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's the sort of concern that I would raise about Judaism is that is it again as a system as a you know as a product is it remarkable? And my fear is that it is not that it that it has remarkable features hundred percent it does, but that the product as a whole is not remarkable today and. For some people, it is, but for the vast majority of people, it, it isn't and it won't be. And what would, be rem- what would make it remarkable would be if it were ruthlessly edited and boiled down to the stuff that would be really remarkable and then sort of presented that way. And the challenge is, is that really doable by existing large players in Judaism? I don't know if you have an answer. That's, what, that's the big question that we're pursuing. Right
2: i uh, i I have a few comments. I don't think I have answers. ruthlessly editing uh by committee is incredibly difficult there is uh, throughout my career uh i've I've worked almost entirely for uh founder owners uh and they carry with them uh, moral authority and and therefore an efficiency in that editing now that they're not always right but to to reveal the results of your edit, you have to do it <laughs> and do it um, clearly and then live with the experience of having having created this new thing. I've never seen that done by committee. And you tell me where you think in Jewish life, Jewish leadership, um, there is that opportunity to have those leadership moments. It doesn't have to be a, a pope-like figure at the top. Uh, although that will be an efficient way for for others to do that, um, but someone in in a domain that can be ineffective has to really kind of declare that moral authority to try and live with and address the shortcomings of the edits, but then celebrate the the efficiencies of it.
0: Well, so in sort of the last minutes that we have, uh, I was thinking about one other element, sort of that it was supposed to be something that I wanted to ask you about, and and then the the idea of choice. Triggered it again for me, which was that um, I think that one of the challenges that Judaism is facing is that it didn't evolve in a in an environment in which the question was whether it was going to be chosen or not. We talk a lot about the chosen people, but um, the people didn't choose it. You know, they, it was generally a choice thrust upon them by circumstance. And so I think in a situation like that. Um, a product or a thing doesn't have to evolve certain sort of factors that make it easily chosen. So, you know, just as an example, right, I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm contrasting the, the story that we're kind of mythically building this series around, the Exodus story, and how much time is spent in the Bible describing in great detail the ornate... Uh, artistic creations of the tabernacle, you know the tapestries and the and the Ark of the Covenant and all these things in the gold, right? It's, it, I mean, it's pages and pages and pages and pages. Um, and when you think about, you know, Jewish organizations, aesthetics isn't the first thing that jumps to mind uh, often in terms of um, that. That's a major, right? If you think about, um, I think if you think about Christianity and cathedrals, you think about like that's where you know, beauty and 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 awesomeness in terms of the physicality of it. Less so with Judaism. And some people see that as a, as a, as a, as a strength of Judaism, as something that, as a real value of Judaism. And, and it may be. And, but it also, I think, sort of, for me, flows from, well, it didn't really need that stuff because it wasn't, uh, trying to persuade anybody to choose it. Um, you know, and then, um, and, and I think that sort of usability is, is a, is a, is a, is a um, Is a, is a, is related to that. Just the idea of, um, you know, well, you know, if you, for example, if you, if you read the Talmud, it's, it's written in a very inaccessible way. Even if you're fluent in Aramaic, it's not, it's not written in a very sort of accessible style because it wasn't designed to be something that people could pick up and be really drawn to. It was designed for a very small elite who would, you know, really be Spending their entire life you know focused on this, that was not all Jews. that was a very small elite and so it feels to me like those are two challenges that in the in, in whatever the next iteration of Judaism might be, we really need to prioritize um, aesthetics and usability and i 'm just thinking that you know that 's where you may have some words of wisdom uh, from both Apple and Square, which I at least for me I find to be both beautiful to look at and hold and, and also very straightforward to use.
2: Yeah, there are a few good stories in there. I think the first is you have to make a uh, I think a, uh, an intentional decision toward accessibility. And I I mentioned that I, I believe Apple went through a cultural shift from being a minority player with a remarkable product to a, a market share leader with a remarkable product and that has some profound effects that that you can't hide in the exclusivity of your club and say, well, this is just for a few people. The price is super high. No one knows about this operating system. Yeah, the, these other apps don't run on it, but it's just for these people and that's okay. And you use that as a mechanism of the ruthless editing. Mm-hmm. But once you have an audience that's hundreds of millions of people and you are the market leader, you have a maybe a different point of view on, on how accommodating you want to be. The usability is, is always a true thing. It's true in every aspect of. Certainly of product development, uh, but everything, uh, roads and bridges and buildings and city planning and, uh, and religion and, uh, the arts, like they're all, they're all trying to, I think, increase their accessibility. Uh, certainly true of Square because we identified something that was inaccessible, intentionally inaccessible at the expense of the long tail of small businesses. That was a, a fun and, and, um, important problem to address with technology development and product design. But when we when we are the majority player, when all people are uh empowered in this way, we'll have to ask the same questions. What is it? Do we want to be an exclusive club? Do we want to expand the club? Uh Squares was definitely one of expansion, continues to be. Uh, Apple, I think, is asking themselves that question right now. And Judaism too, my my view, my personal view, or at least my personal experience in Judaism has been about being a small group of people. Being a minority that it, uh, an understanding of self that was mostly about most people not being Jewish, uh, and I, I acknowledge it's a very narrow view and, and probably not a long term view of I think what a lot of people aspire to, but that's just been my experience. So breaking out of this idea that the that the minorityness of it is essential and, and the the number one design principle, and I think, is what you're talking about breaking through.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting that um, just this question of, uh, it, you know, right, if we did, this is something that we've talked about on our show a lot too, Right? if we if we did uh, take a different approach to Judaism, whether that was a, a modular approach, I mean, think about sort of yoga, for example, as a modularization of Hinduism, uh, and it caught on in hugely, and, and so many people that are not Hindu um, participate in yoga. And you wonder, like, if you pitch that idea to the Jewish world, you know, um, would they see that as a positive? Uh, you know, that everybody in the world is going to be doing this one thing, um, right? Or everybody, you know, it, 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 you're right. I, I think it's not clear. I think I think that there's uh, a lot of uh, lack of clarity in terms of what we're trying to, what, what would success look like to say, is it that we're trying to keep all the Jews Jewish? You know, meaning we have this very small group that we just want to keep them. <laughs> Right. Uh, right. Or is it that we somehow um, want to really make a compelling Judaism understanding that that would probably mean that a lot of other people might be very interested in it?
2: The good news is that if if you have a goal of increasing engagement of existing Jews and you do a good job of that, it is likely to have the result that it will also be more accessible to non-Jews or non, non-consumers, non I think is how Christensen describes it. Uh so a lot of the a lot of the things you would do to address both would be um would be in sync, would be complimentary.
0: I think that's a really great note to close on, Jesse. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. It's it's really I think this is a really exciting conversation and really helpful framing for the work that we're doing. So I'm really grateful to you for taking the time. That's great. I really appreciate it too.
1: So that was a really good episode, and uh, it was no thanks to me. Uh, As I mentioned at the top, this is Lex talking. I was not in this episode, but I really enjoyed being a listener like all of you. Uh, It gives me a, a, a window into the life of a listener who doesn't get to jump on in and babble my brain off every few minutes so um, it was fun nonetheless to hear from Dan and from Jesse and we want to close out the episode as we always do with a call to you out there also listeners like me uh, to be in touch with us and there are a few ways for you to do that first you can head to our Facebook page Judaism Unbound You can also head to our website, judaismunbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up at our email addresses, dan at nextjewishfuture.org and lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with a one-time donation or a monthly recurring donation. And the way to do that is to head to judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. This has been week four of the Omer and Judaism Unbound.